This is episode number three of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today, we have a very special guest, my good friend, Jason Santamaria. He and I worked together at Typekit, where he was creative director. We're going to talk typography, fonts on the web, the type industry, type trends, and so much more. So let's get right to it. So how's your week going? Uh, my week is going okay. It's a little it's a little up in the air because we're we're about to move uh, to Philadelphia, my wife and I. So it's like lots of Whoa. house stuff. You've been in <laughs> you've been in Brooklyn for how long? Um, almost ten years now. God, you are the epitome in my mind of the Brooklyn <laughs> designer, like the hipster designer with the <laughs> living in Brooklyn and drinking the pour over coffee. I choose to take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good, good. It was totally meant uh, as that. that. But that's a big deal. That's going to going to Philly. That's great. It is a huge deal. I mean, it's it's more like you know what's next in life and in Brooklyn because of you know all the hipster designers. It's become very difficult to actually progress in life here <laughs> beyond beyond renting. Oh, the same thing is is happening in uh, San Francisco and has been for for a bunch of years. And I think it it. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of changing the way we think about where companies should be or how teams work and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, really is. It's scary. I, I was reading about San Francisco and how what like the the median uh, rent is is unattainable for like a teacher on a salary. Anybody that isn't you know well into their career on a, in a professional career, I think I think the city itself is is pretty unlivable right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. But you know, at the same at the same token, Manhattan's been that way for a long time, kinda. You know, sure. And Brooklyn is is quickly outpacing that. Yeah, I bet it is. We have had this assumption, at least in my new line of work, you know, as a as an investor, that the company should be based in the Bay Area. Uh, and I'm and I'm wondering how that's going to start to how we can start to chip away at that because there's talent everywhere, and we're getting pretty good at this distributed work and and things like that. So. But at the same time, you know, cities are this like these creative centers where where proximity to other creative people is important and good. So it's so true. And I mean, even when we worked together at Typekit, that was the first time that I had worked remotely at that scale, and that blew my mind at how well it worked. That like completely changed my my perspective on what it means to be at a job and and work with other people. Well, it's a. I think it's a discipline. You know, like an actual, uh, like you, you have to have it front and center in your mind all the time that as we make all these decisions and as we discuss the future of what the product is going to be and how we prioritize that we think, okay, and we have to clearly communicate this to a bunch of people who aren't in the room right now, which is not human nature. And absolutely. And so I don't know, I think, I mean, we did this, you remember uh, the daily standup call, which uh, still seems foreign to a lot of people that I talk to that literally the entire company would get on a call led by the CEO every morning for 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes. But it was a, it was a little bit like, hello, everybody. How's today going? How was yesterday? Good. Good. Let's, Good. let's, let's get to work. Like, you know, I think you need that. It's, it's like the meeting isn't actually the actual content of the meeting is not that important. It's more about the rhythm. Right. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. You have a you have a very different job now. Your what's your title? Yeah, executive design director. Executive design director um, on the product team at Vox Media. Yeah. Vox with a V. Vox with a V. So the Verge and uh, Polygon, right? Mm -hmm. Curbed and Eater. All and of Rack. those. God, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot. Uh, what's uh, what's that job look like now? Right now, it's sort of um, I've I've kind of got, gotten into this position where I get to be. Uh, kind of the shepherd for what it means to have uh, higher craft in our design and to kind of shape the company's opinion and approach to what, you know, design is, uh, which is, is fantastic. I love being an advocate for design. I love talking about design and, and helping like focus really heavily on process and trying to find out where the kinks are and, you know, fix those. Um, so this, it speaks to me a lot being able to be in a role where, my number one mission is just to be there for like the health of the design and the design team. In, in some ways, are you like the arbiter of taste? 
Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think I have some good taste. But, oh, come uh, on, come on. <laughs> um, but no, you know what I mean? Like, I, I believe that like good taste is a, a, one of the values a company can have and that you can cultivate it and actually improve it over time. Yeah, well, I guess I guess in that regard, yeah, absolutely. Then, yes, I am the arbiter of good taste. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when we when we say, especially in America, when we say good taste, it sounds like a classist sort of thing, you know, like a way of judging the others and uh, ho holding your nose up as you walk down the street and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, I see it as like deep product instinct and the desire for quality in the craft and and things like that, as expressed in interfaces that people see. I think good taste is a good way of thinking about it. Absolutely. And it, for for me, so much of it comes down to like the smallest details and being able to tell when one thing is better than another thing. See, that's how you and I were complimentary, I'm going to say. And that you were so <laughs> good at that stuff. And I like God, as much as I wanted to be that sort of, you know, that like steve jobs figure that that's like the, the that that yellow is two shades off and one pixel over you know and calling somebody on sunday morning to come change that uh, like, no, I, I don't see that stuff like i i'm i love vision big picture and stuff like that i can always tell when something seems wrong but man you you always had the eye for like nope right there that pixel tweak that there and yeah and it, it always it always when that stuff is in place i i mean i know i can be really picky about things but when it's in place it feels like it at least to me it like has this effect on everything else like everything feels so much more stable and yeah. solid and i know sometimes i feel like um when you like watch downton abbey and the the people are like aligning the silverware with like a little stick <laughs> like, like an inch away from the edge of the sometimes i feel like that but um it, it also i feel like it it sets some sort of cadence for for what design means so that when you approach that next problem, people have like mentally raised their, their like bar for what it means to have like quality. And, and it's, I totally agree. And it's up and down the stack, right? Like, so if you're looking at that attention to detail, um, the, the developers who are working, whether it's front end code, back end code, anything, they're going to notice, oh, we're going to put the same level of attention and quality into the design work as we do into the back end, right? So when you find, the 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 font that's a few pixels off or whatever it is uh that is the equivalent of for example a failed unit test when compiling your code or or, or you know integrating your code and and i think there's a, a, a mutual respect that can build out of that to, to say the stuff i'm in, interested in is as important as the stuff you're interested and responsible for so absolutely and and to what you were saying earlier it's like you can cultivate that sensitivity to visuals yeah i agree and that you know you're teaching people good taste i think so I, <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with that i like i it. like it i like it that's good that's good um so let's see it's uh as we're recording now it's the end of the week that was just the worldwide developer conference out here in san francisco where mm -hmm. apple sh showed off all their new stuff uh we'll probably release this podcast next week so it's kind of a little bit old news but one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about that i think is relevant to the work that we have done together in the past is this idea of subscription models and apple just announced uh subscriptions in the app store which has a lot of people talking and scratching their heads and uh, predicting doom and gloom or a bright, happy future and, and things like that. But I find it really interesting since, what was that, six or seven years ago now, you and I were working on Typekit and, yeah. um, and, and explaining to the world why renting fonts might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, those were interesting conversations. <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew we were onto something because it was so polarizing. It wasn't like everyone was like, hmm, yeah, okay. You know, like, I think we had like half of an audience out there that was like, oh my God, what a great idea. I get this huge library and I can subscribe to it. And it's just like Spotify and it'll open up music, fonts. The white music has opened up to me. Like there were some people that really got it and other people that, you know, thought that we were the, the end of the creative world. Like you gotta be kidding. Like I, I have a library of fonts. They are my fonts and I own them and they are part of my toolkit that I take with me from job to job. And, you know, and, and both of those things are true and they're very polarizing. And I'm like, yep, we're right in the sweet spot here where mm -hmm. half the people are terrified and half the people are so excited. They can't wait. Yeah. And I, I think at least I, I might be reading into it a lot, but I, I think that 
a lot of that apprehension came from uh, some of the foundries and, and type designers as well, because they, I mean, the internet is, is just where their stuff gets stolen. So, so liberally that, uh, they, they've also been like, just as a, you know, over the course of time as an industry, so heavily affected by format changes. Like those are huge, huge sea changes whenever there's like new technology or a new way to approach, uh, type design and the distribution of type design, they're most often, you know, the ones greatest affected. Yeah. And I always found that that was really valid and that the, actually the, the argument that what would happen to fonts, uh, was, uh, already sort of, there was already precedent for that in what happened to music and video on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I took that actually, I thought it, it, it was even more acute with fonts because when you when you pass around an mp3 of the band playing music you're not passing around the actual source material it's a copy right mm-hmm. but fonts are software like it is the whole reverse engineerable if that's a word <laughs> but it's the it's the whole package like everything is in there it's a standalone and that's it it's the ultimate quality it is all they have yeah so um so i believe that um that the 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 metaphor of like we're going to get napsterized uh, is not only appropriate but m- much higher stakes for the font industry, and I think we we tried really hard to take that very seriously with what we did with Typekit, but I still see it today. Yeah, I I don't think that's gone away, but I I think that the work that we did and the work that a lot of others of, of our um, colleagues did too helped to mitigate that a lot. Some of it was just like getting, getting used to the idea and seeing things out in the wild and understanding that, okay, our, our worst fears are not, are not actually going to prove out. Yeah. Um, there was that, right. That compliance, I guess, or that theft protection could be handled more with, with licensing and contracts and less with technology. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that has played out. Uh, I think anybody who's doing, I mean, I can't imagine that, that Vox Media on any of their properties could get away very long with an unlicensed font in, in one of the web designs there, uh, just because you guys are very visible, uh, and you're a, you're a, you know, you're a company, a going concern that is frankly suable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're obviously, you know, all, all, all okay with all the type that we use, not only that that was just the case before I even got there, but I, I am another voice added to the chorus of of doing things the right way, especially by type designers. Um, but I think that there are still like really high profile. Like every so often, it will be like, oh, someone's someone's campaign or this like big you know ad ad campaign or or e commerce site is using a font that they didn't pay for. Like this stuff still happens. Right. Right. It's it's kind of crazy that you know. You're, you're, I don't think that that conversation of, you know, why, why fonts are valuable, why they cost money, why they're not just, you know, on everyone's computer is, is going to be ongoing forever. Yeah, I agree. I also think, right, and this is a big part of the conversation that we were having those years ago with the foundries as we were getting started, that once something becomes purely digital, it is very, very hard to actually charge for the asset, right? Because it is imminently copyable like it is it is built it is the nature of the web it is the nature of computers that that i can just make copies and i can send copies and and that's almost impossible to to deter and enforce and so the big selling point i think we tried with typekit was that let's let's try to close our eyes and assume a world where you cannot protect a digital asset how can we still derive value from that asset and our answer was as a service the fact that we would serve from our central computers the right font format. You would never have to worry about that. We would do the right thing in all the different browsers. It would be on a CDN, so so high, high performance around the world. Like we pitched all of those things saying, look, the font file itself is not where the value is. It's the experience of having the font show up in the browser in the appropriate way. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's where the value is going to come from. Yeah. So. You know, and it makes me think a little bit like referring back to this now that there's going to be subscription in the app store, right? So your, your, your little to-do app or, or something like that, like a photo filters app or something like that, it, you might scratch your head and say, now, why does that have to be a subscription? But if you think about, I also have 
a Dropbox app on my phone and a Slack app on my phone. And it, it, I don't think twice about those being a subscription. Of course they are <laughs> because they're a service, right? Like all my files are in the cloud and they're accessible everywhere and they're stored, they're backed up and they're on Amazon, you know, via Dropbox. And that all seems like something you would pay for every month. And Slack is a service that keeps me connected to people. And we, you know, they charge per seat per month. And of course they do. That's how that kind of software works. But they're both apps on my, on my phone. That, and I, yeah, I think that's the sort of, um, the, the shift that we're going through in how software works, all of it as a service, as opposed to discrete piece of code that runs on my machine and I own it on my machine. Do you think that there's going to be any pushback on certain kinds of of subscription apps? So I was, uh, you know, John Gruber does the Daring Fireball in the talk show, and I was at the live, he did a live version of it here at WWDC, and he had Phil Schiller and Craig Ferragetti, Fer Fer you know, the guy with the hair. <laughs> <laughs> he had the two of them on and, and asked them to clarify this stuff. Uh, and they were along those lines. They're like, any category of app is going to be fine for subscription. But it will be case by case in how they're evaluated to make sure it's not just like one piece of software that never gets updated that the developer just decides would be great if you paid me for forever. There has to be some... They're legally, actually, this is not even an Apple thing, but in many jurisdictions, you can't sell a subscription for a thing that doesn't improve in value over time, which is really, really kind of interesting as a consumer protection sort of thing. So they said they have to be able to evaluate the app on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think what we will see is that we will be more likely to pay a subscription fee to uh, very sort of, like, I, I guess the word, like professional heavyweight apps you know, something like if Sketch made it to the iPad, that seems like, well, those guys put a ton of development. They tend, they're starting to become kind of an industry standard. It's, it's a big, powerful application. They're updating it every three months. I, I think that would be appropriate for a subscription or the kind of thing where there's a live connection to a service that's in the cloud that, that provides me value continuously. That seems like it would make sense as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, something like a Slack or or something like that. I wonder also how much, I mean, to your point about sketch, how much like a brand comes into play, you know, like a historically sound uh, company or a software product. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think about it like, well, so now I've been really focused on podcasting lately and I use uh, Marco Arment's Overcast. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. And that to me feels like an app that I would pay a subscription for. He updates it all the time. It gets better and better all the time. There's a tiny layer of service over it, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, I believe I can upload an MP3 and play it through his, like if I have, um, you know, uh, podcast app, uh, files, MP3 files that, that, that aren't coming via an RSS feed, like I can still upload them and, and, you know, there's little bits and pieces that feel servicey, but ultimately it's just a developer who's super committed and is constantly updating the software. I love that, especially any way that a, an independent developer, like a small shop, can be more sustainable to keep keep doing what they're doing and not have to, you know, either go out of business or get gobbled up. Right, exactly. So I think it's an it's a way forward. I think we will run into issues industry wide of subscription fatigue. You know, you look at your credit card statement and you're like, oh my God, what are all of these things? 99 cents, $1.49, <laughs> geez. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I don't know. Um, uh, I, th I think we'll figure it out along the way, but this actually feels like a, a, a step forward. Now, but now saying all of that, right, now we're in a world where fonts as a subscription service is pretty common. And in fact, is there, there's a couple of services that have, have launched recently that, that push it further forward. Does that make sense? Does a font file, is that continuously upgraded uh, software? Some are, but not really, right? Like, mm -hmm. I've, I feel like there's there's some fonts that, that keep getting more characters or other ligatures and th things like that, but that's not, doesn't really feel like versioned software that needs a subscription to support it. But there's also this idea of like, I don't, do I really want to spend $250 for a font family that I'm going to use on this one project and maybe not use again? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And and the thing that's that I find interesting as well, and something that I've been encountering a lot in projects is it, things have kind of coalesced into different camps. So that if you want to use typefaces from one foundry and pair them with someone else, you you have to overcome a, a bigger technical hurdle. 
So say that I want, you know, fonts from one foundry that's on Typekit, but then I want fonts from someone else who's not on Typekit. Do I go through the, the, the hoops of, you know, loading from two different services or hosting half of them myself and pulling from a different service? Right. Or do I go from just the one source, which feels, I mean, that, that appeals to me from a technical perspective because I'm making fewer calls to a server and, you know, it feels a little bit more consolidated. But those are weird design constraints that we've introduced by making this this new ecosystem. Right, right. And it seems like the way to rise above some of those constraints, especially in, in web fonts, is to pay a lot of money to do this sort of self-hosted version or, um, you know, like Typekit, you could actually specify what CDN you wanted to use, but that was for enterprise. And that cost, you know, in the, in the five, six figures per year for, to be able to do that kind of stuff. So I think as a, you know, an independent designer or smaller projects or things like that, you, do I have to put calls out to the Typekit CDN and the, the Hoffler CDN and, you know, on and on and on. I, yeah. I agree. And, and from an engineering perspective, that just puts all these dependencies in place where like suddenly my website is vulnerable to different outages from different places in ways that I don't like to <laughs> really think about, you know? Um, on one hand, I, I hate it. On the other hand, it's also, it's made me discover typefaces I probably wouldn't have otherwise. How so? Oh, you, oh, meaning like, well, I'm stuck with this one. So let me see what else they got. Yep. Yeah. Where, where I'm like super into one typeface and it's like, oh, well now I need something to pair it with. Let me see what else they have that might work. And that's, I mean, that's part of the point, I guess, but it's, it feels weird if you only, I don't know, if you only go to like one store and you only wear all the clothes from that one store. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That's a, that's a really good analogy. All right. I will take that outfit and that outfit. I'm done. Right. And I'll need underwear and socks and <laughs> Just hook me up. Yeah. And so there's been a little bit of news in the in the type world and that a bunch of it seems to me almost like the last collection of independent type designers and foundries have have banded together in something called the type network. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, people like uh, Font Bureau and uh, uh, who else? Uh, 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 his name is escaping me. Uh, David Jonathan Ross. Um, have kind of banded together and put up a storefront, kind of like a, a loosely joined like type conglomerate and leaning on one another because this stuff, I mean, e-commerce on the web is still a pain in the ass. That's, that's just still the way that things are. But um, when you're dealing with things like licensing and, and keeping accounts so that people can continue downloading things for an independent company, that's a lot of maintenance for the web and something that they might not be natively uh, adept at. So it, it makes a lot of sense for these people to band together and to have one place where you can find a lot of their type. Um, I think it's most interesting because some of these people, especially like Font Bureau, have a lot of uh, clout. I mean, they've been around for so long already. And to see them kind of join up with other people is very interesting. Yeah. And bringing some of the fonts, like, I don't know is, is, if Miller is in there, but Benton is. And like some of these truly classic uh, typefaces now uh, available in, with all these other independent designers in a consistent way of licensing, which I think um, uh, of licensing and delivery, which I find really, like you said, much more manageable, right? Much more appropriate to how I think, I don't know, one of the things that we, we had talked about when we were starting up Typekit was this idea of separating the business decision from the creative process. And I think that's really hard with typography, right? <laughs> it is. And I think, I think the other thing that's nice here is not just from a, an amount of maintenance and kind of leaning on one another, but having some agreement on what it means to license, have a, have a license for a font. Because if you go to any other foundry, they're all going to have very different legal contracts for what it means to have a license and how many computers you can install it on and, you know, how many pamphlets you can print with it before you have to pay more. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to see people coming together and agreeing upon, like, legal terms for all of their different creations. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a huge benefit, even if it does mean some consolidation. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the fact, God, consolidation in the, in the type industry is kind of ridiculous. Like <laughs> if it's not now type network or Hoffler, it's monotype. 
Yeah, monotype I mean, monotype bought, bought everything. Everything. Font, 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 like font shop. Um, my fonts. My fonts, Bitstream, like all of it is all part of monotype now. And they're not the most flexible company in the world. <laughs> that's, that's very true. The shame of it is, is like they have such a huge history and like tons of resources and libraries of like original drawings of typefaces. Like they can just keep pulling from their archives for decades. Um, but you're right. They are, they can be really inflexible and it, it's not, it's never good to have everything coming from only one source because I think that it, you know, it's, it's going to squash any sort of innovation. It's going to squash any sort of movement forward because they're the only ones who can dictate terms. Yeah. And if you look at their business, right, I mean, they're a public company, so you can kind of get some insight into where their revenue comes from in their quarterly reports and things like that. They have to keep growing and they, as any, you know, viable business does so much of their revenue in the past has come from licensing in embedded systems, right? Like putting their fonts on an HP printer and then having, you know, annual contracts with HP and things like that. And, and well, frankly, that, that business is not growing. So, <laughs> right. So they're looking, obviously looking for other places like embedding in web app or embedding in, in mobile apps and, uh, and things like that, uh, the, uh, web hosting and, and all that sort of stuff. It, it gets me back to this, this question about price and value. Right. And, and even when I look at, at type network or what's the, there's another new one as well, uh, where, where you can actually rent desktop fonts, right? Font, font stand. stand. Yeah. Which looks super compelling and actually really beautifully designed. But, uh, the, the, the pitch there is you install this, this app, uh, on your desktop machine and it will on the fly kind of a little bit like what Typekit did when it became part of creative cloud, right? It'll on the fly install desktop fonts, uh, with an interesting, like, they have a one-hour trial for each one of them, which I think is really cool. You can you can actually like play, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. Right, because what was the alternative? Like, I spent a lot of time talking to designers about how what their process like was like with fonts, and what I heard from every single one of them is that they would download all the fonts that they they wanted to try illegally. They would mm -hmm. get them off a of BitTorrent or Usenet or something. They would try all the layouts that they wanted to do. Um, until they figured out what the type pairing for that project would be, show it to the client. If the client liked it and they were going to go forward, then they would go get legal, right? Exactly. Because you're not going to spend two, three hundred dollars per family to try out a bunch of different alternatives, and and it's not like these are shareware or or have a have a freemium model for any of the foundries. So the alternative, honestly, was was suspicious quality fonts downloaded via BitTorrent to try to mock stuff up to get approval so that you could actually go get the license. Yeah, it's it's completely true. And I think that the the best thing about it, too, is that it's sort of like you were saying with Typekit, we, they found a way to to make it more compelling to to use the service and to be, you know, do this the legal way than to than to uh, go the opposite way. And and the thing that's really cool is you can try out these fonts and you like you said it's an hour and and that's plenty of time most times you'll you'll know immediately whether or not a font is right or whether you want to pursue it further but it it makes all of this stuff available instantaneously it's it's fantastic right um but let's get back to the price. So the, the rental fee uh, in general, I don't know if it applies to everything, but they say their sort of guidelines are 10% of the retail uh, price per month. So, um, so a font that costs $100 uh, for a family is going to be $10 a month. You know, like, look, I, I know fonts are incredibly difficult to produce that truly high quality typefaces can take a designer at least a year, right? To do mm -hmm. the whole character set, not even getting into the international character sets. I get all of that. But like, you know, I, Proxima Nova, Mark Simonson, I love that guy and I, and I want him to be successful, but it's 28 euros a month for the Proxima Nova family. <laughs> right. And so what's that? That's like about 30, $32. That, that's more than the creative suite. Like it's more than creative cloud for all of the, uh, I, it's, it, I, I get I, I get the idea of doing it per project basis, and maybe I'll only use the font for a month, and that's awesome, and it makes it more accessible, and I get all of that. But um, but you know, even looking back at the the type network, their embeddable font license for making like iOS and Android apps is almost a thousand dollars per year. 
and I don't, I don't think there's a lot of apps that make anywhere near that much money at all, let alone having $1,000 cut into margin just for a font for, to, to embed into the, into the app. How do you feel about this? Because you've always been an advocate for like, no, this stuff is hard. It should cost money. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the case of font stand, I think in practice, it actually works really well because you use that hour to figure out which weights of a typeface you actually need and you don't end up renting that whole family for the month, you end up renting two weights. And All right. And so like, then it breaks down to maybe it's only five bucks a month or something like that. And, yep. and, and yeah. then your project is going to run for two, three months and I'm like 15, 20 bucks out the door. Yep. Exactly. All right. All right fair so enough. That, that, that feels way, way more sustainable. Um, in the case of the other way, I think that some foundries bank more on big customers. They want to land that huge like enterprise deal rather than, you know, 25 small deals. And I think that might be why some of them price so, so high. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And certainly if you are going to select a typeface as your corporate identity and you're a, you know, and you're a corporate, you're a corporation, um, you know, spending a few thousand dollars on an entire family and all of its weights and, and, uh, variations, Oh, I reckon that makes uh, that you know that doesn't seem like uh, an extraordinary amount of money at that point. Um, I I don't know. I just keep thinking of like the independent developer who wants to do the right thing and and actually wants to use a typeface that makes their 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 app or or their website stand out a little bit. Are they destined to um, Google Web Fonts? You know. Well, I mean the 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 other benefit of all this stuff is I I feel like there are way more quality typefaces coming from all angles, not just from one foundry or one one side of the internet at all, like kind of across the board. Even Google Fonts has a good number of of solid typefaces. So you can you can do a lot either for free or you know with a very small budget that still feels competent, that still feels current, that still feels like you're you're using real um current stuff. And I I think that if if anything has come of you know all the font stuff that's been happening in the last five or six years, it's that the the kind of baseline for what quality looks like has risen considerably, and the availability has like broadened out so much. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um, any any favorites right now? What do you like working with? Uh, any favorite typefaces? Oh yeah. gosh, I <laughs> you know how some people have um, wish lists of like books and things that they want to buy. I have Pinterest boards of typefaces we should send people there go look you up on pinterest and and start stalking your your wish list of typefaces i think that, oh yeah. yeah it's just uh i'm just slash jason santa maria but i have you know sans serifs and serifs and all all kinds of um stuff split up and some of them are like ones that i've bought or ones that i really want to buy and use for another project um some some of the best stuff is actually coming from independent people right now. D uh, David Jonathan Ross, who I mentioned earlier, has yep, been yep. on a tear. He just came out with a new site. Um, he did that uh, really like gigantic monospace family called Input, which I love to death, and I use that in in my code. Um, but he came out with another typeface this week called Bungie, which is sort of this vertical uh, this typeface you can set vertically, almost like old signs off of buildings. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's just, it's fantastic. It's also a, like multicolored, like layered typeface. So you can layer different weights to get different effects and things. Uh, and it's just, it's stunning. The, the kind of stuff that's happening right now. Um, that's, that's great. So how about, or, or, or are there a couple more you wanted to, to uh, talk about? <laughs> we can talk all day <laughs> about, about typefaces. There's another one uh, called Griffo. That's really nice from uh, our typography. Uh, another one from David, uh, Jonathan Ross came out a couple weeks ago, I think, called uh, Gimlet, which is is just beautiful and commercial type. I feel like they release something every month that is just like, uh, another one of these that I really want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. No, commercial type does fantastic work. Um, they they all do. Those are all uh, just beautiful typefaces. How about just at the at the kind of macro trend level? Like I remember. It was probably five or six years ago when slab serif everywhere, everything was slab serif and everybody was using Archer. Remember that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't think we're there anymore, but I, I haven't picked up on, is there a, is there a wave of uh, a particular style that is sweeping through the industry right now? 
Um, do you have a sense of that? Oh, well, yes, but I'm sort of at the tail end of it. I think that we are severely oversaturated on uh, just like sans serifs, just simple, plain, geometric, you know, gothic sans serifs. Um, and part of that is like all of the the small company sites and things, you know, uh -huh. that, have, that have popped up. But it's just like so, so saturated. Every it, One of the huge reasons why people say, you know, all web design looks the same is yeah. because of all the use of the, the sensor. So I think if anything, we're starting to see people coming back from that a bit. And a lot of, a lot of stuff I'm starting to see are really high contrast serifs. Oh, and, like the uh, wired.com redesign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, yeah, bigger display uses and things like that, because um, I, I feel like there was this huge expansion into using web fonts and then people retracted a little bit and they're like, Oh, right. This is like a ton of asset load. And they're like, what can we get the most bang for our buck out of? Of course, it's going to be the big display stuff. So let's like choose a really great eye-catching uh, headline typeface and right. then maybe use default fonts for other stuff. And when you say, uh, for, for people that you know don't work with type every day, when you say like a high contrast serif font, you don't mean like between black and white. It's the weights. It's that sort of Vanity Fair, like really tall serif font that gets really fat and really thin in places. And um, I think those are beautiful, if almost illegible, but still beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, yeah, that's exactly it. So the thins, some of the pieces of the letters get very thin and some get very thick. And that's what creates the, the high contrast, the sort of difference between the uh, width of the strokes of the letters. Um, and I, I think there are different degrees of that. Some are also just really interesting um, kind of revivals of, of older uh, serif typefaces. But I'm, I'm definitely seeing like a shift going back to that. Not not so much the slab, like you were saying, but certainly just a movement away from all of the sans serifs. Yeah. Well, I think, honestly, a lot of that may have to do with the fact that that people value design a lot more now than even five years ago. They don't just want a website thrown together. Plus, there's so many services with such good design where you can go to WordPress.com or Squarespace.com and actually get a relatively easy to put together and pretty attractive website, even if it is a bit of a cookie cutter approach. But I think we have. I think that's why so much. I mean, oh my God, the, between Squarespace and WordPress, uh, I think we're talking about maybe 30, 40 percent of the sites on the web. <laughs> really, it really is that much. Those they, they, and then there's the other sort of down the long tail of like Wix and Weebly and and things like that. But these these template driven uh, out of the box websites uh, are being designed with again people with good taste, right? Like, and I mean the people that work for the companies that make the the, the templates and and all of that. It, if if you compare the quality of typography, uh, photography, you know, all of that, the layout and all of that to where we were between five and 10 years ago, things look a lot more sophisticated and a lot better, but everything also still looks the same. Yeah. And I think that's, that's sort of what gets at the crux of it is as much as there could be a trend, there needs to be people moving away from it to be distinctive. Right. Otherwise, I mean, you need to be able to stand out somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that is at at some layer the 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 history of typography <laughs> as a means of like I'm going to choose a different typeface because it needs to be different. You know, like the yeah. the snake eating its tail. Right. We're going around there like it's got to be like I want to stand out. I want somebody to look at this and go, whoa, that's ooh, that's unique. Right. Of course you do. So, um, so I get that. But so. Just just a bit ago, you mentioned something also that's really interesting in the context of, of typography um, in the work that we do, which is the backlash to the bloat of pages. And it was how many, uh, well, that's almost a year ago now, I think, when um, uh, Apple allowed content blockers into, um, into iOS. And I think one of the things that I was really frustrated with, but also sort of understood was that web fonts became one of those things, generally not by default, you had to go and kind of switch it on, but became one of the things that were blockable. Yeah. And that, you know, a little bit broke my heart that like we got lumped in with all of this privacy tracking, terrible, like massive uh, payload of advertising coming with all these content websites. And then the web fonts, which uh, can take, you know, a couple hundred K kilobytes worth of, of uh, bandwidth are getting stripped out as well. And oh my gosh, the implications for what the, what the sites look like in that context, you know, that's tough. 
Yeah, sending the web back 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> At least. But I don't get a sense that that's been a, uh, like, that a lot of people have turned off web fonts. It still seems to be, but it's still something we have to be really mindful of. And I think there's been a lot of progress around asynchronous loading and stuff like that. Some stuff has been baked into Chrome and WebKit and, and stuff like that to make that a little easier. You follow that stuff very much? Yeah, I do. And I, I think that th this, is, this is one of the things I struggle with most with uh, typography on the web is how to make that asset load smaller. And you know, advancements like WAF and now WAF2 like condense the, those those files so much, but it's still a lot when you think about just a basic palette for for what it means to have like some typographic diversity, right. especially if you're working on editorial sites like we make, because you're probably loading at least you know fonts from two families. And in order for you to have like a good palette for content, you're talking about a normal, you're talking about italic and bold, and it just adds up so, so quickly. Yeah, now you're at eight to 10 individual font files being you know requested and loaded and have to wait for them and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and I think one of the big struggles there is there, there are not a lot of great ways to tailor what that is. You can tailor the loading pretty well now with stuff like uh, Web Font Loader uh, and Font Face Observer from, you know, Brum, Brumstein and, and some of the CSS uh, modules that are coming. But I think that more than anything, I wish that we had a little bit more access to the, to the, the meat, uh, you know, the innards of the fonts to either customize the characters that you're loading to, to, crunch down that file even smaller. Right. Uh, and that's just, I mean, some, some uh, license agreements don't allow that at all. Some uh, don't expose that function in any way. It's, it's, it's really, really, I mean, it's a huge technical problem on the Foundry side to deal with. But uh, yeah, it's just a big gnarly mess. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's uh, unpack that a little bit. So first of all, there's these... Um, for people not so much into the technology of, of web fonts, there's a file format that came out either five or six years ago called WAF, a standardized version. And it's essentially a wrapper around OpenType, right? Is that fair? Yep, yep. Uh, which does essentially uh, a level of compression. There's a new version of that that came out recently. I, I can't quite remember when. WAF 2, which I think uh, Google put some additional... Uh, in an open source sort of way, they contributed to this standard file format with additional like 30% smaller, but it takes a little longer to, to compress and uncompress or something. So, so trying to get the fonts smaller and more and higher performance is one of the goals. But what you're talking about are this idea of like more dynamic subset of the characters inside the font. So that, for example, if I'm going to use this nice high contrast serif font for just my headlines, on the page it's loading, I should only need to send the characters that are in the headline. I don't need to send the entire character set of, which can be thousands and thousands of glyphs that I never need to use. Yep. Or even if you know that you never, you, like you only ever use that in uppercase. You know, can you get rid of all the upper or lowercase characters from the font and chop the file size in half? Exactly. Right. Um, I could probably, our, our, our website is only in English. I don't need all the diacriticals and, and all of the other uh, uh, character sets for the foreign languages. Uh, but I know that both Monotype and Typekit uh, as font services are developing technology uh, around actually parsing a page and on the fly creating uh, a WAF file that only has the characters it needs and can change that uh, per page load. So you get into some questions about, is it more effective with caching or not, because it's a different font file each time, but they can be so dramatically small. So there's some really interesting technology happening there to try to solve the problem that you're facing, um, especially in these cases where like, actually all I want from this typeface is the ampersand. <laughs> like that's all I need. All I need are the numbers here. Like, and, and there are plenty of design scenarios where you might imagine I only need two kilobytes worth of this font, but yet I still have to send 200 K. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that's where that's going to be like the next big change is figuring out ways to either deliver a smaller package or deliver it like a lot more efficiently so that you don't, you don't notice how long it's going to take to, to load those six files. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of work to do there. So yeah, I'll put some links in the, the show notes to what uh, Bram Stein has been working on. He's um, He's got a lot of uh, like font loading patterns, how to do it asynchronously so that it doesn't block the content. And, um, and he's been thinking about that, going really deep on that too. Yeah, he is. I, 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 he really does. He goes super deep into it. And I think he's just, he's doing such a huge service for, for all this. He's also really involved with the browser makers on all the lists to help them get uh, more native support for a lot of this stuff too. Right, right. Uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting is this concept of how typography responds uh, to page layout in a responsive world. So there's this idea that not only should like margins and letting and even font size change per layout in a responsive design, but perhaps even width and letter spacing and and on and on, right? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of because technology and in, in what it what it takes to actually make a typeface family has has advanced so much, there's been so much development around um, using interpolation. So sort of designing a typeface at one width or another width and being able to interpolate between those. Um, and this also works with different weights like boldness uh, or actual widths for extended and condensed kind of stuff too. Right. To automate a lot of that, not not. Not completely, but to automate it enough that you wouldn't have to redraw all those things, um, but you could just sort of touch up what, what's been done by a, an algorithm. And because of that, I think typeface families have gotten huge. So you'll see families with you know 30 weights or 50 weights. And um, this is really useful for designers because you get to choose a lot of you know very particular things for your use case. And some people have taken this to the next degree of, you know, as your... Um, the width of your layout on the web would narrow, why can't you just use a slightly narrower typeface and then a slightly narrower typeface again as it, as it gets you know down to mobile sizes? Um, that way you're kind of still dealing with the same general size type. Uh, you're just maybe not taking up quite as much horizontal space. Right. It's a really interesting idea, but I mean, this gets right back to what we were talking about. So, you know, are you now loading like double or triple the amount of typefaces <laughs> just to get this this much more pleasing design effect to happen uh just in I, yeah just in case somebody rotates their device <laughs> right i mean that's what you're that's what you're saying exactly and yeah. it's it's like it's the perfect thing for that ocd designer who i i will certainly count myself among um <laughs> because it gives you the like the most fine-tuned control over that typography that you can imagine for every use case but uh it it certainly does balloon your your asset load yeah so you're so you're saying essentially a, uh, it would be still a different WAF file to to download and uh and render for each one of the scenarios or each one of the breakpoints in your responsive design exactly so you're dealing with a regular and then a compressed and then a extra condensed and <laughs> And so forth. You're envisioning a world that perhaps th that intelligence is built into the font file itself, a little bit like in the 90s, what Adobe did with multiple masters. Exactly. And I think a lot of people are, are pushing for that, too. So, you know, a much smarter font file that can either do the interpolation on its own or right. somehow consolidate all of those widths into one one package. And so you send a, a handful of sort of base outlines along with some math. Yeah, and say go figure it out, and then <laughs> and then the font file itself then has to know what the CSS wants, which seems conf that sounds hard, <laughs> but super cool. I think it's um, it's really interesting. You know, Tim Brown, uh, nice web type, uh, and uh, and that sort of library manager. I think he is at at Typekit has done a lot of research into this kind of stuff, really digging in. And I'll put a link to all of his stuff in the in the show notes as well. But um, but he's thought an awful lot about this, like. This, this idea of how does typography itself change in all these different contexts and can we be more like the conductor of an orchestra uh, as a designer, you know, saying like these are, are the, this is the this essence of what I'm trying to get across. Can I write some code? Can I have some more, I guess, intelligence that, that helps my layout respond in all its different contexts? Yeah, and I think most of the most of the typography that we make for a web page is kind of aimed at the worst case scenario. Right. And this flip this flips it around where you can actually tailor to 
the exact scenario in a much more competent way. Yeah, yeah, that'd be ah, that's amazing. That would be that, uh, that's a bright future. I think there's a lot <laughs> a lot that can happen there. That would be really cool. Uh, anything else going on in the type world that you find compelling or interesting? Um, what else is is I mean, Google Fonts just redesigned. That was I, I didn't see that coming. That's actually really nice. Um, they did a really good job at that, yeah, and I think yeah. that they got a bunch of um, type designers on board to make typefaces as part of that relaunch too. That's great. That's great. I've always uh, been a real admirer of the the intent and goals of Google Web Fonts, which is very much around accessibility and um, internationalization, open source fonts that can serve communities that perhaps might not be commercially viable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that when they started off, they Google... Google design in general was still kind of a punching bag and over the years since they've they've been around and how much you know material has taken over Google Google designs material um I feel like not only have they upped their design game considerably but they've certainly shifted the perspective of what design means at Google like it's it's something to be lauded now I think Oh, I, I agree. I, I was there, I guess, now 10 years ago, and it's uh, it was difficult to be a designer at Google back then. Uh, the remarkable amount of change that's happened in how they value design um, and what they've done, especially, like you say, with material design. I, I've been so impressed with that. Really, really impressed. Yeah, and I I mean, they've been, to my mind, eating eating Apple's lunch for the last few years when it comes to design systems. I mean, just so, so well-considered. Um, through and through, and and something that just keeps adapting and evolving. Yeah, still feels like uh, a, I can appreciate it, and it still feels like a foreign language to me. <laughs> but that's I, I've just been in Apple stack for so long that I can't. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to break out, right? I normalize all of the the frustrations of Apple design now, and and like become <laughs> I've become this enabler. I think it's a very codependent relationship it's I have a with Stockholm, Apple. Stockholm syndrome with, <laughs> with iOS. It is. It is. Um, cool. So uh, let's see. You people can learn more about Jason Santa Maria at jasonsantamaria.com dot com is one place, and you are also Jason Santa Maria at Twitter. That's right. Anything else you want to plug? Let's see. Um, you're still involved in a book apart. Book apart, still going strong. I have lots of lots of books. Amazing series of books over there, and you got a bunch coming out that I wish we could tell people about, but they should just keep watching because it's it's just such cool stuff over there. You you are creative director over there. You kind of uh, guide the design of all of that, don't you? Yes. Yeah. All the the print and the eBooks and the website. Yeah. Well, we have so much good stuff coming out this year. I'm really one of the books I've just been clamoring for. I'm so excited. Well, I, uh, since that's not out yet and you won't tell us what it is, I'm going to point. Oh, wait, no, that, that one's actually been an announced. That's uh, Craig Hockenberry. He's oh. doing a book on um, color management, oh, which fantastic. is like the, as far as design goes on a screen, it's like the dark art that no one fully understands and everyone hates. Totally. Oh, that's amazing. That's a good one to look for. I'm also going to uh, point people to your book, which uh, I think is the definitive web typography book uh, in our industry. So they should go check that out as well. Yes, on web typography. Yeah. So thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, this was a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fein. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentable FM. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.